Blitzkrieg, The Witcher, and The Royal Game of Ur. This is staying in. Sorry, sorry if I'm a bit, if I'm a bit um, sort of rushed this evening, but just, just before, just before we, uh, we were recording, uh, my wife and I, Dan's not here so I can do it as much as I want, my wife <laughs> <laughs> and I are watching a programme on Channel One, BBC One, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and it was called, it's called something like Best Home Cook and basically it's a, it's a, it's a cooking show where regular people who <laughs> who are really good at who are really good at cooking yeah. live in the same house for the period that they're in the show and every day it's quite weirdly sort of dystopic in in a, in a weird way that there's all these like cooks li- forced to live in a house together and every day they're forced to cook food for an elderly judge a michelin star chef <laughs> and a green grocer <laughs> And whoever performs, whoever performs worst is never seen again. Um, <laughs> but we, but we were watching it, and yeah. the first challenge was to create the ultimate meringue dish. And the idea of the show is that they've got to be home cooks. So essentially, what they do has to kind of reflect how they cook at home. And it never really gets that balance right because I'm sure, like Kate, the stay-at-home mum, isn't making like milfoy as like <laughs> oh the grandparents are coming around let's make some milfoy it's like but anyway and they were making these meringue dishes and like meringue pies and meringues topped with like pistachio and figs and me and me and my wife just looked at each other and just like i really want some meringue i really want want some of this food Ooh. so i and lisa was at least was just like no 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 we, we can't we can't we can't we can't you're you're recording in 10 minutes you can't you can't you can't and then we can't just look at each other again i was like shall i it's like no 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 so i went 10 9 8 7 16 she went okay go <laughs> so i just literally like picked up my keys picked up a shopping bag ran out the door got the car got to sainsbury's raspberries taste the difference meringues and sainsbury's own double cream back Ooh. home in a bowl podcast <laughs> Oh, what uh, what an incredible achievement. <laughs> Thanks. Um, man, married life hasn't changed you, has it? <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, no, that, that to me, that to me is an exciting way to deal with the problem of watching those food shows. Because whenever I watch stuff like Chef's Table or uh, what was the other one? There was a food truck one with by, by the guy who, who... Who's the guy who does the Marvel movies... But He's only in one John of John Favreau. Yeah, yeah, that one. He does a. He... Uh, yeah, I mean, we've known you so long, Pete, that even when you're <laughs> being completely factually inaccurate, <laughs> we can still piece yeah. together what you're trying to get towards. He did. He's done a. He's done. Um. He's done like a show about a food truck. Yeah. He also did a film as well. Yeah. Prior to that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Which is a very good film, and I can't remember the name of the film. What was it called? Chef. <laughs> Chef. Okay. There you go. Uh, <laughs> I mean, the name pretty Christ. much creates itself. <laughs> What um, was the film about that chef? No idea. <laughs> what was that Alfred Hitchcock film about the birds call? <laughs> <laughs> but that's very good. And but the thing is, when you go and watch those those that film or the series that he did afterwards, you're always just sat there like, oh man, I could I could totally go for like a really delicious burrito right now, or uh, you know, or well, it's difficult with Chef's Table because it's like, oh, I could really go for one thousand pounds a head, like like Michelin three star rated food it's like mm, maybe i couldn't i just ordered a pizza i once went and saw the the hairy bikers like who were like mm. um they're like television chefs mm-hmm. and will cook sorry they're not trained chefs they're cooks kind of thing but they do i've got a few of their recipe books and things okay and i was sat kind of in the middle of the kind of seating arrangements so i couldn't really see them that well and above them was a screen which you know like going to any kind of show or gig it had them projected above and it was really weird because obviously i was watching them on the screen but, but for the first time when watching a cooking show I could smell what was being cooked live in front of me and it was such a surreal experience it was like smell vision or that's, something along of that oh, ilk oh that's cool it was utterly surreal but yeah that was a really weird kind of disconnect there uh, between what was on the screen and what my other senses were telling me was happening live mm. 
I arrived uh, on my doorstep this morning. I got yes. a lovely gift, which I bought myself. Which Go on. It's probably a little... Is it an early birthday present? No, bugger That's it. That's very early. I'm well, just... it's either early or it's late. Yeah, or a Christmas present. What? Yeah, I just, I just, I just bought myself a game. I finally, I finally crumbled and decided that getting The Witcher 3 on the Nintendo Switch was a positive thing. <laughs> Right, can we in my just life. can we just like drill down into the into the Sam Turner psyche at this point? Why? Because, oh, because sure. yeah, because this feels this feels a lot like like you and Fallout. Like this this feels a lot like like so you've already put quite a lot of time into The Witcher Three already, right? But on PlayStation, I mean, yeah, I could probably tell you the the, the statistics, but I completed it a couple of years ago, and I think that ran to about a hundred and. 15 hours right well i, I mean say i mean you're into three digits which is which is a significant amount of playing yeah. time so and he barely scratched the surface <laughs> well right you say that chris <laughs> so, so so you you have that version there's now this switch version and that now my understanding is that the witcher 3 on switch is called something different isn't it it's got like all the dlc and stuff like it's that. it's just called the complete edition basically right okay so it's got all of this dlc stuff so are you now in a position where you need to because I assume there aren't save file transfers and stuff. Are you in a position where you now have to like play all of those missions again to get to that DLC, or can you access the DLC earlier? Well, I think even though even though they have they have had some issues, give CD Projekt Red their dues, and they've actually made jumping into those two new two expansions uh, exceptionally easy. Uh, when you start a new game, you decide whether you want to play start a new game or you just want to play the, the expansions as a standalone experience right, and okay. you basically jump in they give you a, a level 35 version of Geralt and then you're away you just enjoy okay. enjoy the story so that was that was mainly my reason for for picking it up obviously there's there's a part of me that just is idly curious about how Saber Interactive have managed yeah. to put The Witcher 3 onto the Nintendo Switch and make right. it look and run like it does is actually a, a bit of a staggering achievement so part of me buying it was out of general like as as a hobbyist of the form just like how did this work like what compromises have they made like just genuinely interested in the form but the other part of me is that these um expansion packs are meant to be exceptionally good and about 30 hours each so wow. you get your money's worth yeah exactly so so my plan is to play so i've started a new game so i'm just going to do white orchard which is about four or five hours just to learn how to play again yeah and right. then i'll jump into the expansions but Sam, have you tried it um, handheld? Because that's my biggest curiosity because I saw someone playing it handheld online and I, I must admit I was tempted because there's something about playing such an open world game as it is on the move. Have you have you given it a try in handheld? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've given it a try in handheld. I've actually... What's it like? Most of the comparisons say that you... that handheld is just better than... Really? Oh, that's really because good Because as it upscales through the TV, because the resolution isn't that great, you notice a bit more of things like popping and texture and bad texture textures right. so actually uh, I found that it actually looks better and runs better in handheld than it does when it's docked to the switch um, so I mean you can borrow it and see what it looks like on the likes I don't know whether the slightly smaller screen will hamper it because already the already the UI is a little bit cramped and a lot kind of a lot going on you lent me the Witcher 3 once um, and I played a little bit of the White Orchard but it was at that time where I just hadn't I wasn't in the right headspace and I didn't have the time really to commit to an open world game i generally have this little rule my new year's thing every year is i begin january the first by starting an open world game and i generally spend six months playing it yeah and like at the moment you pete and i are currently playing assassin's creed odyssey yeah. we are that might curtail ever so slightly but yeah who knows i can play in both to be honest i know there's no, yeah. no, there's no one in each hand now. one in each yeah. hand did, did you know interjection <laughs> that assassin's creed odyssey is available on switch did you know that no it's in, it's in japan only and it uses the same technology technology that they used to put Final Fantasy, I want to say 13, onto mobile. The whole thing is streamed and it's only available in Japan and so if you, you know, if you try and play any, any other way it's just not going to work out. But you can play all of Assassin's Creed Odyssey oh. on a Switch. Isn't I, I, that interesting? I, I genuinely don't think I'd... Mm, there's something about the vistas and the expanse of Oh my gosh, Odyssey. That, that was the hook for me. More mm. than any Assassin's Creed game I've played. I've only played, admittedly, I've only played one before but the others have not really grabbed me in terms of their land 
landscape as much as this one and plus you know being able to go to um digitally in game to the village where my partner grew up in it's just been great yeah i mean she's completely unfazed by it but i mean i'm loving it you know it's fantastic um so yeah i'm really really loving my time and, I, and i'm gonna be in there till june i know it. i'm gonna spend six months <laughs> in this game genuinely genuinely yeah. it's yeah. got me i i i'm i'm actually putting as much time as i possibly can into that game because i i've kind of got to the point with it where i'm i'm really really enjoying it but i do also want to play other things mm. and yeah. it, it's so compelling uh, one way of being able to experience the witcher without having to commit 110 hours to it <laughs> uh is to do what i did which is the cheats way uh i i gave in to my netflix account's constant barrage of recommending me to watch uh, the witcher series which came out uh, towards the tail end of last year sure and um it was like one of the most hyped series on netflix i think at that point i think it, i think it was it, it, i think it was the third most popular show netflix had that entire year i think i might be wrong jeez listeners can probably correct me on that but i when i played the witcher 3 I think unconsciously I was think a bit put off by the fact that I'd not played the previous two, and I was I felt yeah. immediately I was on the back foot. Mm. And secondly, that the RPG elements of it were a little bit too. Uh, it felt at that time, at least to start off with, a bit too granular for me. Like I know it sounds really silly because there are people who play that game thinking, well, no, this is pretty simple. But you know, shifting between the kind of weapons, trying to gauge what weapon is appropriate, what spell is appropriate for each creature, I felt was a bit of a grind for me. Right. Whereas Assassin's Creed Odyssey, it doesn't matter what I've got in my hand, I've just got the highest numbered particular weapon. And yeah, just, sure. I do different kind of maneuvers with it, but it's still, it's just a weapon I've got in my hand that I dispatch um, enemies with. And also, I just, one of the things that put me off some of the old Assassin's Creed games, and in fact, some of the Far Cry games, is the fact that I always felt the world was out to get me. Like, that I couldn't just wander through it freely. There'd always be someone trying to attack me. And I just really kind of put me off it. Mm. So this series, um, this is really weird for me because I'm talking about a series having not played a beloved game series that I imagine most of our listeners will have experienced in some capacity. But equally, I think, Pete, you're in the same boat as me because we've not really played the games. So I've I've not played. Um, Have you read the books at all? Because obviously this is based on a very a beloved book series. Yeah, I um, yeah. As I say, like I've not really played the games. Um, I think I might have put ten minutes into the original Witcher, like the original original one. Um, but I, you know, certainly not enough to form an opinion about it. Um, and I have, yeah, I've read um, the first book. Wasn't that that was the shorts? Were they, they were a series of short stories, weren't they? They are Last Wish and Sword of Destiny. Okay. So I have, because I'll be able to tell with my account, I think it's The Last Wish. Yeah, must be The Last Wish. Well, that's pretty good because this TV yeah. series from Netflix, which I think is eight episodes long, it's it's actually primarily based on those first two short stories. Right. It's about how yeah. the three main characters, how they began before they all kind of meet. So you've, you've kind of got a bit, of a, a bit of an origin story here, but not an origin per se of the characters individually, more of their kind of later meeting and how that affects them, let's say. Yeah, I mean, so The Last Wish is... A collection of short stories that that sort of as you say it the origin is almost like the origin of you getting into the idea of reading more about the witcher like it's very yeah it's very good at, at setting out a lot of ideas very quickly like for example you know the witcher is the witcher may look human but he isn't like the witcher may may do good but isn't yeah. necessarily good inherently good um yeah. and also sets up a lot of stuff a lot of the like more mature themes that that um that the Witcher universe tries to tackle, you know, all sorts of all sorts of subjects that, you know, if you've if you've seen the TV series or you've read the book, you'll know you know what I'm talking about. But it's certainly yeah. not it's certainly not the kind of subjects that I would normally sort of like gravitate towards. I mean you guys know yeah. I mean Sam, you you know the kind of stuff that I'm usually into. I like what unfortunately ha- yeah. <laughs> yeah. happy. Two clappy. Three slightly crappy. Uh and uh, <laughs> it's all about rhyming, isn't it? This yeah. Year? yeah. If it yeah. rhymes with happy you'll read it yeah absolutely so but there is a bit of that in this series though because I, I kind of think for you Pete this is this is this is how you this is the kind of Game of Thrones that you would enjoy yeah yeah do you know I, I thought about that the other day I was watching episode I want to say maybe three and like it really really ups- 
hit me because it is that one of the episodes deals a lot with a young lady who is from her birth is very much down on her luck and uh, is not treated particularly well and like th- that sort of stuff I, I I find really difficult to to read or, or 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 sort of engage with but there are moments of levity like there are moments where like there are jokes and yeah. like and like that character is not just played for the like boohoo sorry sort of like sad state kind of stuff that character actually has a lot of depth and you you really root for them and also like she's also a little bit like the kind of characters that I like that are like the Joker where like you engage with that person and the stresses they went through and on some level you start rooting for them a little mm. bit like mm. where you're where you're kind of like oh yeah this was bad and and now I'm totally on board with you doing this this and this I think I I'm just want to just preempt some listener questions here which Joker are you alluding to please <laughs> are we talking I think he's about talking Joaquin about Phoenix, Phoenix Mark Hamill are we talking about Cesar Romero <laughs> are we talking about the two that are found in a standard deck of playing cards you know Jack Nicholson so like I think we, we've we actually not actually explained what The Witcher is because we can't just assume that every, all the listeners are going to know this, this is, mm. so this is like uh, a fantasy drama based on a beloved book series mm-hmm. would you call it low fantasy I, I, I wouldn't know I leave it to your expertise there Master Willington I, th- I think it's kind of it's like low fantasy but magic but what does that mean that low doesn't mean yeah. anything that's low, just lo, low fantasy so there's there's obviously like high fantasy which is the opposite of low fantasy Sam keep up keep yeah. up it, high fantasy is kind of like Lord of the Rings not the battles like it's the like the journeys and goblins and elves and oh right, okay well, well if this if this settles it then go on and this is all I know from the game yeah is that Witcher is set in a world where at one point it's called the like the collation of the spheres or something like that so at one point there was this like crossover event a very short period of time monsters and horrible things and magic was allowed into our normal earth world and then that stopped and sort of left all this stuff behind so it's not like lord of the rings fantasy where all this stuff is just everyone lives with orcs and elves and Right. And mythical creatures all at the same time. It's almost like a normal world, in inverted commas, but invaded by fantasy yeah. figures. I, I kind of I see low fantasy as like what medieval Earth is, was actually like, except for there's magic and awful, awful human beings have decided we're going to figure out how to use some of this stuff. So, so it's a like a little, it's like a little bit of fantasy seasoning. It's it's like yes. a, it's like a it's like a oh 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 goblins oh 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 little bit of um a little bit of um i, I literally so, can't think of any so other the witches creature. essentially were these typically abandoned children orphaned children or just abandoned and then they would undergo a certain amount of mutations and training in order to i guess be the sort of front line against capturing monsters and that kind of stuff i think i think what you're striving towards is <laughs> they're this world's ghostbusters okay yeah but more of a social outcast and pariahs than the, oh, the nice than guys the ghost- in the dude than the ghostbusters have you seen ghostbusters one yeah, and but you're- two yeah but Geralt hardly has the charming effects of bill murray does he yeah what Geralt? what just popped in there <laughs> yeah um, so yeah, so this this series, yeah, you follow this monster hunter, um, the Witcher, Geralt, played by Henry Cavill, who I I think this is my favourite role I've ever seen him in. Second is in Mission Impossible Fallout. Mm-hmm. I've realised the more I see Henry Cavill, the more I realise he's not very good playing nice guy roles. He he's more developed in these kind of roles when he's got a little bit of edge to him. And I say developed. Disclaimer: I've only seen the first two episodes of The Witcher, but there's something about his slightly frosty demeanour. And I know in the past some people have um, described his acting as being wooden it just works for this kind of Geralt yeah. character I mean it is yeah. almost a bit like Geralt in the video games in terms of just the animation style he- and things and and basically this whole premise of this narrative is that you've got a series of outcasts that have been for whatever reason cast back into something big and the word destiny keeps getting mentioned which is a bit of a cliche in fantasy but as Pete mentioned before there's an appropriate degree of comedy here where it'll kind of pokes fun not only at itself but also some of the conventions so in the beginning of episode two Geralt Henry Cavill is sat brooding in the corner and uh, the local musician uh, kind of comes up to him and mocks him saying you're just going to sit there brooding in the corner and you can't help but think of Fellowship of the Ring when the hobbits encounter 
Strider sat in the corner of the pub. He's the only one who, who's just, for some reason, the lighting is just perfect. You never see his face. It's just shadowed. And you see him brood and smolder. So it's kind of poking fun and drawing attention to that, that, that kind of the lone traveller, as it were in that context. I'm hooked on this really because there's a big destiny going on here. There's a there's something of a prophecy. Geralt's name is being mentioned in other circles. What is significant about this man, the fact that he's a monster hunter? What links him to the other two characters? Princess um Siri played by Freya Allen and uh Yennefer played by Anya Shalotra. Like that they're, they're tied together these three and I don't know yet what that is and that's enough of a hook for me really. It feels very much like a first season. It feels like it is I'm shuffling the deck, putting the pieces on the table and we're going to get a good second season I think and we are going to get a second season it's going to come from this really but I think another boon is that it, there's not really much green screen in this yeah. it's filmed in nature it's in central Europe Spain you know some bits of London and it feels, it feels really feels like real rooted yeah, yeah. It, there's there, there's a kind of uh, very similitude to it there's a kind of a tactility to it and that and there's some gorgeous shots and beautiful vistas in there that make it a really striking and robust feeling series hmm it feels mm. like a world that does exist beyond the screen. Yeah, definitely. And like, as I say, I've never been one to be into, um, you know, the doom and uh, uh, the doom and gloom TV stuff. I think my era of TV was always like, I would say, I would say like early eighties to uh, like like mid nineties. That is like the perfect period of television for me. So like, so what epitomised that for you? Like Cheers and Frasier and like, okay, uh, so what, is that comedy? high or low fantasy? <laughs> well, some episodes of Frasier are proper low fantasy but like big TV big like momentous TV you know the water cooler stuff of Seinfeld right but like it's comedy like there's still really good characters there and it's still very like this is New York like you watch Seinfeld and you're like this is very obviously New York and you know real sense of place real sense of time real sense of like character and very very funny and I've not I've really bounced off like you know I'm not keen on watching stuff like uh, Game of Thrones and Breaking Bad and you know that that kind of thing but this one has got me this one's this one's the one where i'm like there's enough levity in here to be to 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 make the dark bits seem all the more dark like the extremes yes. you know the the extremes of depravity and and stuff that that some of the characters go through or 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 sort of inflict are broken up by moments of just very funny jokes like very yeah. fun characters and and also i would say like you know it's got the classic every TV series has got to kill now at least a couple of animals on screen there's got to be at least a few moments within the first few episodes where someone gets something through the eye like yes. somebody's got to be beheaded like oh, it's like okay I get it we're all ticking off we're all ticking off the Lannister box but not all TV series at the moment have the bravery to come up with a song like you know uh, you know toss a coin to your witcher or whatever the hell it's called which, like, be- which um, I was looking into this actually like it's become that popular that players of the game have like created mods where it can actually feature in the game i think that's genuinely brilliant like and and the fact that it ties back into uh the witcher stuff so for example um the witch tv series came out and witcher 3 on steam had its most players ever right so most active players ever were after that tv series came out and i think that interesting because it's not purporting to be an adaptation of the video game it is from the novels right really interesting that cross-pollination well here's the thing i think that's really fascinating about that and it's something that that i think a lot about for my own like work which is often when we when even on like podcasts like this right where i think we're quite sort of not to get too navel gazy but like i i kind of feel like we're not we're not particularly trying to like speak to a like an ultra hardcore uh like audience that is like you know doing top level wow raids all the time like we, we don't go into things in that sort of level of detail right like we forget a lot of the time that most people don't actually care about video games all that much like and it's the same with board games like like the 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 number of people who actually play video games and board games is proportionally quite low and certainly even with video games 
which are a m huge mass market medium now, like really the games that most people play if they port to, to play video games, like they are your FIFAs, your Call of Duties, your Fortnites. And, and just to be clear, like there's obviously nothing wrong with that. Like if people enjoy that, that's great. But what they're definitely not doing is they've never heard of Bioshock. Like they have never heard of Gone Home. Like they certainly have not played, you know, your JRPGs and your like your classics. They probably don't really know what Metal Gear is or anything along those lines. And so when you then, they, they will not have played The Witcher. And so when this big TV series comes out and now suddenly this, rather than, you know, fantasy books, which again, quite a small audience, rather than fantasy video game, which is again, comparatively quite a small audience. Now you have fantasy TV show and like TV show is huge. It's the same reason that like movies always make so much money, right? Like because the, the potential audience for that, the barrier to entry is so, so low that like, because it's literally, it's literally sit there and watch this and, and you'll enjoy it, right? I think, I think that that tells a lot to the fact that The Witcher has had its highest player count recently because of this TV series. Yeah. And like, I, I th I, yeah, I think that it's also the case that, yeah, Game of Thrones has made fantasy television extremely popular. Right. And that's, that's then had that, like, it's had that ecosystem impact of, okay, now it's not, now it's not a video game for a very niche audience. Now it's an audience, it, now this huge audience that has seen the TV shows like, oh, where can I get more of this? Like, again, like, I, you know, I'm, I'm like a, a, a I read all my books on Audible, right? Like, and like, they are advertising that like really hardcore. Like those books are all being uh, advertised really, really, really intensely. The video game has done the same. And I think it's this thing, it's this reminder that, that this hob these hobbies that we have of like video games and board games and all these other sorts of, and, and books, you know, reading certain kinds of genres of books and stuff. We think they're massive because there is tons of talk with people that are very like-minded like us, but actually it takes something like a TV series coming along to make to make something ginormous. So actually, like, it, it's an argument that could be made because video game adaptations in themselves, and I know this isn't just a video game adaptation, but video game adaptations in themselves don't tend to be successful. And is there an argument to be made that actually one of the best strategies is to not, it's, it's just to pretend that they're not video games you're adapting, actually? I, I, I think that's exactly it. Like, so people, people who may watch the film not knowing, actually, what it's adapted from, or even if it's adapted from anything. So. Right, well... The, the, I, I, I just I assume that it's doing what all good adaptions should do, which is to consume the media with the book or the video game and go, right, what are the themes? What are the tones? You know, right, what are the right, right, you know yeah. yeah, we can copy the story, but we've got to get the you know, the feeling right and the and the um sort of what am I trying to look for? Like, you know, the atmosphere. The, the atmosphere yeah because there's um I, I don't know you I, you might have already answered this but the thing that strikes me always about the witcher 3 was that it was this very sort of high concept fantasy sure. world but the character of Geralt was so well grounded and mm. was a perfect analog for the player and also the stories that he encountered were not always were not always sort of reflective of the genre so there are some missions in the witcher 3 where you literally just find someone's missing frying pan and there's a, there's another one where you investigate a magician who predicts the future by reading stinky cheese and there's um and i think what works really well with the witcher and i don't witcher 3 and i don't know whether if, if this is reflecting the series but i wonder whether it does because it's been successful is that all the way through Geralt deals with those things just like the player does in terms of <sighs> do i really have to go and find this bloody oh there's there's, there's 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 a lot of i think that's where some of the humor comes from so yeah, like exactly uh, there's like you know there's one monster encounter in uh in in one of the episodes and like and like the response that Geralt has is the response i as peter willington like you know slightly sub average human being would have to that exact situation yeah. and because i'm you know when you're watching it you're thinking oh god you know that's how i would think and then to have Geralt, this you know you know well built knows what he's sort of doing guy to also exclaim that at the same time you're like oh this is brilliant this is yeah. this is i i feel I, a I, connection to this that, character. that became a meme i remember, i know that but it's all that already became a meme because it, it was just so funny it's but, great but finding but i think that's what makes good adaptations good adaptations is they've obviously realized that that humor of Geralt and that part of part of his personality is actually what makes him an attractive person to watch rather than his abilities with the sword 
sword and oh look he just took down that right. dragon right like, like if you you know have you seen the movie clue no oh, not for a long long time so <laughs> so God, uh, it's such deep cuts peter i i know but but the movie uh, you know uh, we've gone you know, from <laughs> we've gone from the witcher to tim curry as a <laughs> reminder as a reminder right clue the movie is obviously based on cluedo the reason yes. that clue the movie yes. is a success is not because it rigorously steps to like imagine if they try to you know imagine if they hang tried on, to hang like, on hang on did you just say the reason clue the movie is a success yeah <laughs> it, and it is it's a great movie it's a very funny very good movie and the reason that it is successful in what it does is because it doesn't try and replicate the board game it does of course it, not it takes the themes and the ideas and the tones and accepts that it's in a different medium and i think that's the same with the witcher like if the witcher th- if the witcher tv series had just absolutely steamrolled and been like well we have to tell every story that is in the witcher we have to do it really canonically we have to follow the first three games or like you know follow every single story and cap you know encapsulate monster of the week kind of stuff like they did with the first book like i don't think it would be doing as doing as well uh, as it as it currently is but i think we need to do a shout out then to lauren schmidt hisrich who is the showrunner who um i believe had worked on daredevil and umbrella academy which i really enjoyed as a tv series actually i know i like both of those previous yeah. episode of the pod and she's done a fantastic job from what i can see so far in getting to getting towards those things that sam was talking about getting the atmosphere so yes as you say pete rather than having monster of the week every week implying that that stuff still happens it just happens between episodes or you know in the same way with doctor who you don't see all the adventures it's just implied that they have right and, it, and it's like a small part of the all you know there's an ongoing arc and maybe every episode they deal with some of that stuff but this there is this looming you know long thread of a of, of a of a story that's actually happening yeah i think it's i think it's super smart Hey guys. Hey guys. Hey it's a brand new year and all throughout last year we did an amazing thing for charity and we decided that we were going to start up our own team on the Charity Miles app and we did. We started in the Staying In Pod team and we invited uh, people from around the world to come and join us <gasps> yes, we did. to race along with us with the idea that we we're going to try and see how much money we could raise for charity because using this app, however much you run or walk or cycle all of it contributes to helping raise money for a particular charity mm. um so 31 people including the four of us uh, dan included helped us uh run walk cycle 31 people 31 people downloaded the app I got involved believe, i can't believe that one person listens to this <laughs> go on um so it's incredibly um generous of all of them yes um, i mean you. i should just say uh, i'm gonna say a personal thank you to all of them andy barton chris uh nicholas nick hughes plopsworth matthew <laughs> gasson uh aiden croissant adamski robin z dan hughes a uh, quarth max davy neil bailey Catherine hopkins Brittany harbridge super ted 62 mike wilson Lindsay bluff graham burrows mike door alex brixham callum elkham my wife uh, richard simpson <laughs> pete norman winston and super kmx thank you, you to each one of you all amazing for doing what you did to help us raise some money Beautiful. for charity now the results are in for the final amount that we raised how much did we how much did i say that we were going to raise oh let's let's not let's not worry about that yeah let's not overhype it, this son yeah because it, okay. was it was it something like didn't you say two grand and then we talked you down to fifteen hundred. <laughs> yeah yeah i'm fairly confident swear, it was something like that like i'm gonna was it, go was it, uh, hang on, was it, yeah like, let's just was, have one to begin with shall we yeah i swear it was like two thousand five hundred something like I that. Can't. all right okay sorry well um dan has very gratefully provided us with these um with these results which, the final which he's had to calculate by hand that's not yeah he's nice he's one, had dan. to he's done an amazing job getting with all these ready so we raised actually first just the four of us how much do you think we raise so just the four of us uh, bearing I mean, in mind that dan came third overall in this oh the thing. okay yeah okay so just the four of us raised 571 dollars for charity no. the stand up for cancer that's, that's great, great isn't it that's really good that is phenomenal overall yeah we run we ran walked and cycled uh 12,060 miles andy barton was yeah. number one with yeah. 2,248 miles. What? He raised over $300 on his own. What? 
What? Yeah, crazy. Well done, Andy. Andy Chris was well second. Done. Dan was third. So overall, and Dan's put a prox on this because he had to do a few of the calculations on his own. And if he cycled, it was worth less than walking or running. But anyway. Okay, yeah. TNT. Yeah, come on. <laughs> overall, the staying in podcast team. Oh, God. With Charity Miles raised for charity $2,663.35 for charity. No, that cannot be real. Wow. I'm going to say that again. We and you listening raised $2,663.35 for charity. That's amazing. I honestly don't know what to do with that. That's extraordinary. That is incredible. And, and And like, it was just, it was sweat. It wasn't even like, it wasn't like we were putting money in. It was like just walking yeah or running or cycling well do you know what that is do you know what that's absolutely made my day that's incredible like what like, honestly a, what a pat on the back I want to give to every single person who like helped yeah. out that is absolutely lovely and it all went to uh, great great charities yeah. and oh so good isn't that good yeah that it is, is it is great and if you, and if and here we go here's a tantalizing offer if you oh, are one of go. those 27 people <laughs> So we, we've lost four already. Yeah, well, that's, yeah, that's, well, that's us, us four. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Oh, yeah, it's true. Yeah, go on. If you're one of those 27 people and you are going to be at the UK Board Game Expo yes. this year in Birmingham, then yes. please make yourself known to, um, yeah. to, to us because, because yeah. I, we will genuinely give you a, a hearty pat, on, pat the on the back yeah, to absolutely. say thank you. We're still, trying to wait. We're still trying to work out what Pete's going to wear so he's easily identifiable as being yeah. part of the pod. Luminous jacket. His running just, shoes, spikes on. I'm I'll sure put- the... Birmingham Convention Centre will love that. I'll just wear uh, what I um I'll just wear what I had from on my exercise bike. It'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> there's there's cosplayers at UK Games Expo. So <laughs> Do you think maybe- there'll be Peter Willington cosplayers? <laughs> yeah. Oh look. dear lord. Um, do Peter? Yes. Hi. Um, I went round to Sam's for a bit of tug of war. <laughs> Is that what you guys are calling it now? So um, basically, sometimes Sam will occasionally contact me and say, Chris, look, I've got a backlog of board games. They need to be played. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, we went, I went round. Um, fresh from a recent playing of Watergate, which we'll, we'll talk about in a future pod, we wanted to play something of a similar ilk, a similar tug of war. And I'd come across a game that I'd heard a lot of praise from, people putting it in their kind of top tens of the year. And that comes from uh, Paolo Mori, and that's Blitzkrieg. Um, which okay. how would you describe it? It, it it's kind of a war game but it's also a bag builder it's tug of war as I said before but it's mm-hmm. also got a nice bit of tile placement so it's got everything going for it really you're playing across the theatres of war a bit like what we had a few weeks ago when we talked about air land and sea so it's ticking a lot of boxes for us really yeah and yeah I mean I mean we've played a few of these kind of bag builders now Sam I'm thinking like things like Quacks of Quedlingburg and also you and I have just finished the Dunwich Legacy of Arkham horror the living card game which has a bag kind of drawing aspect the chaos bag say for example correct um yeah i think it's kind of a blend of all those things really because um the idea of the game is each person is playing like the axis or the allies as usual and on the board you have these five um theaters of war and with each theater will have a certain amount of campaigns in it so each theater is like europe asia the americas and then each one will have separate campaigns in it and and essentially what you do on your turn you have this bag and you blind draw these tokens and then from those tokens essentially creates like this hand and you'll put these tokens down into these campaign slots and these campaign slots will reflect whether it's like a land army has to go there or a navy has to go there or an air force can go on either and on each token there'll be a number and that number will determine how much control you then exert upon the whole on, upon the theatre as a whole so right. you have this like Chris said this tug of war within the theatre of who is currently got the most amount of points on this little track of the theatre and that's important because once a campaign is closed i.e. all the token slots have been filled in the campaign whoever's got the most power in that theatre whichever side of this tug of war the token is on they'll get points that go towards their overall score of the war as it is yeah so you know Pete like Seven Wonders Duel when you've got that sh- the shield for the military and it goes yes. either it encroaches upon the enemy or it comes towards you and you score yes. at the end of each age points depending on where it is you've got that multiplied as Sam says around five times and it, you pick and choose which theatre you want to go into and the, the sliding scale will be at different points 
throughout and you've got to think well okay where's the optimal place for me to put this where I can just tip that in my favor and I'm hoping that Sam hasn't got that tile with a five on it and because there's only one space left and he could play that now and he could just take that particular theater right because you've got screens in front of you you've each got a screen in front so I can't see what sat in Sam's hand of tiles he hasn't got to keep them in his hands he can just put them there behind his screen and what's quite cool as well as that kind of sliding scale is that Sam can be quite clever and quite smart as to where on that theatre he places its tile because it will give him certain upgrades um, there's an upgrade for example where um, he can increase his points on the slidey scale or there's another one where he basically bombs me mm-hmm. and what that basically means is he randomly picks a tile from my hand from behind my screen and sticks it back in my bag so all my strategy mm. which I'm planning up to then just goes out the window because of that essentially right and so I'm trying to not only am I trying to strategize and, and find the optimal place to put my fantastic tile that I've got in my hand in the right theater but also I'm trying to second guess Sam as to what he's drawn from his bag that's behind his screen and try and work out what he's going to do next and again it's a bit like that seven wonders duel when you're trying to work out okay if I take that card it's going to unlock that other card for that player to take so I'm trying to second guess that person so does it feel does it does it feel like it earns its theme like like is it is it actually a war game this is a good or is question it, is it just kind of set dressing well it says on the box recreate world war 2 in 20 minutes nah. which yeah, 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 yeah. So how would you describe it, Sam? I mean, you could, is it what? It's it's abstract because this is not how World War Two was fought. But at the same time, you know, when I'm bombing Sam and I just take one of his tiles, it's equivalent to me bombing one of his like munitions factories or yeah. bombing one of his aircraft carriers. Right, so There's a little sure. bit of that in place there. It's a little okay. bit of subterfuge. And, and there are thematic, there are thematic tokens in play as well. So there's like um, a spy token that will essentially like copy um, a token that's just been played by by one of your opponents there's a nuclear bomb token which pretty much brings which can pretty much make a seven point swing on a theater track so it could give you all the power in the region but you lose two points on every other theater for having so two points go towards the opposite team because you used a nuclear weapon so there are all these little um little touches of of theme there's like there's some really nice things like on coastal theaters the dominant force that you're going to be putting down is navels, naval craft and ships and then as you move more inland and you're putting down more like tanks and armies so it, it's the theme is the theme is very very gentle and and but overall the dressing is probably the thing that i have the most problem with and i think that's just a general boredom with allies versus axis yeah, and the world war dressing like undaunted undaunted normandy by osprey games is getting rave reviews and i and it's a game that i really want to pick it up but the thing the thing that really puts me off is just the dressing just like oh we're doing war again and like chris and i already have memoir 44 we have v commandos and we have blitzkrieg and air land and sea and air land and sea like we have all these games that are, are great games like blitzkrieg is a great game like yeah sure it sounds like over it. like even my wife she really likes it like because you sit there and you have these lovely screens in front of you and it feels like a real uh, like it's just a really compelling game where there's there's all these like little quiet struggles going on around and there's all sure. these like there's all this like juggling plates and these you're relying on luck from the from the from what you get from the bag but there's also just enough of um some take that mechanics like dropping bombs to make your player put one of their tokens back in their bag so they're losing some of their resources so which mitigates a bit of that luck so like it's an exceptionally well thought out game and like you genuinely i've never played a game that lasts 20 minutes but they all feel like games mm. that are lasting for an hour in a good way because you, yeah. you re- when you're playing you really feel like the cogs are turning and yeah. there's a there's a genuine deep and interesting battle going on on the table yeah. but it, it's just it's pretty it, tight yeah but it's just i think i think i think that the theme makes it difficult to bring to the table sometimes yeah, so do you want to talk about the expansion, sorry, Sam, that we received as well? Yeah, so we always we also received very kindly from the Plastic Soldier Company the Nippon expansion for Blitzkrieg, which is kind of like a sort of semi... What's that TV show called? Go on, explain it. Uh, Edelweiss, the man who would be... Oh, oh, the man in the high castle. The man in the high castle, there you go. Right, so right. So it, it imagines a world where Japan and uh, and the Germans have, evade, have invaded America and are competing for it. Okay, And okay. it actually does a really 
lovely thing with the theatres because in, in the normal game of Blitzkrieg you can sort of attack any theatre at any point and sort of if you know you're losing a campaign over there you can be like right I'm switching tactics let's concentrate on on going in this theatre where I can get some quick points get some get some bonuses get some resources build up my bag a bit before I then go somewhere else that's a bit more high value whereas in the Nippon expansion you can only move on to another theatre once one campaign within the, within the previous theatre has been completed so it feels a lot more like a general sort of advance during a war which again thematically makes sense because it's set within America so there's more of an idea of you know an army slowly advancing from one state to another whereas Blitzkrieg is more of a global overview of yeah it's, of like, the a, war. it's like a flow chart yeah it's like a flow chart but there's also Godzilla in it which okay it's I'm in two minds I'm in two minds about because part of me okay. it is a fictional take on a war scenario so I'm fine with Godzilla being in there and for me it hints at part of the design which goes we're not really almost that almost says yeah this world war theme is kind of like right yeah like we're not really committed to this as like the thing like we're not trying to say anything about world war two no which is is what a lot of you know world war two and world war one and any other conflict games a lot of those games um it feels like um it feels like a lot of games don't really they just use it as kind of the aesthetic yeah and like i can i can understand that and i can even get behind it as a as a thing um and i am also like i'm also deeply interested in in like games that will also let you explore what those were in a much more serious manner like that's that's really cool it's the the stuff in the middle that i find quite difficult where it's like it's like we're gonna sort of vaguely be about this and vaguely treat it seriously but also it's just we're just goofing off really so i actually like i actually really like it when companies come along with the you know and change the aesthetic into something that is very obviously not of that era like that to me is more interesting like as soon as you were like because you were saying like oh you know it's it's about the you know it's the japanese stuff i was like okay well i'm not really i mean you know this doesn't feel too exciting but as soon as godzilla's in it i'm like sign me up but but that's the thing because 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 that's what because what that tells me as a player is is that an expansion's further down the road it, it kind of shows me that they're going right we've got a really solid game here in terms of mechanics oh yeah and play yeah. and um interaction between the players we've got something great like paolo mori's like it, it's it's a it's a really solid incredible bit of work but what that inspa- ex- expansion tells me through its fictional setting through godzilla shows me that hopefully future expansions will be like right this isn't about war now this is about mm. i don't know mm. industrial espionage or like spy uh, warfare or it's you know well it sounds like the game is so compelling the actual mechanically the game is so compelling that if you like world war Two as an aesthetic that's probably all right and like you're probably gonna enjoy it and if you don't like like maybe this is one to play any like play but like I, I, i'm always one of these people who like always looks and sees on board game geek whether or not there's like a re-implement okay yeah. with like with like a theme that i don't like yes. where i'm like okay i'm not really that bothered about like you know um i'm not super interested in like land-based warfare in like cromwell's era yeah. but there's a napoleonic version and i'm like oh sign me up lads and that's like, the thing about this mechanic is that it, it can work pretty much of any theme where there's conflict right right, yeah. right um that's the beauty of it and that is the lull and the pull for it for me and it fits so beautifully into our war boys day sam because i could imagine we'd start we'd start with <laughs> this yeah we go into memoir 44 yeah then air land and sea is an icebreaker and then we finally end as a collaboration with v commandos yeah i think i think i think my sort of malaise with the war with war as a genre may have been tainted somewhat by the fact that we dedicate a whole day every year to playing just (laughs) war games but but when we were when we were when we were playing when we were playing games that day and we played blitzkrieg we played skulk hollow we played um, parks played parks which i think Game. I think we need to talk about on this on the show at some point in the future. But out of all of them, when we finished, we both went, should we play Blitzkrieg again? And it's yeah. just like, yeah. Mm. You know how Backgammon is one of the greatest games of all time? Yep. 
<laughs> yeah. no, my partner got a backgammon set for a birthday, I think, Ooh. from a family. Like this was like last year. Like, and I, I believe it or not, it's one of those games I'd never ever played before. I just yeah. saw this strange board of weirdly shaded triangles and right. dice and and discs. And so, yeah, I loved it. It's elegant. <laughs> so can, the reason why it's a classic. So so what does that? What, um, so what's that got to do? With what you're about to talk about? Well, so backgammon, it's thought, is uh, a highly evolved version of a game called the Royal Game of Ur. Um, uh. And <laughs> was that intentional? No, no, that wasn't intentional. <laughs> That's how I it's wish. pronounced. I think you'll find Peter. <laughs> it's got five. It's got five R's in it. So, so I, because, uh, because obviously I've been playing Assassin's Creed, and I've been looking at, I've, I've been playing a little bit, bit of a downloaded backgammon again, because I was like, oh, I'll get back into that. Um, and I remembered that there was a company called Ancient Games, and I believe, I believe it might be one person, um, uh, Sullivan Boussignere, and they make a series of mobile games, and I think they might be doing a Steam version. I, fingers hecking crossed, because I really want to play some of these games on, on PC rather than on mobile. Um, and they do a series of games that are old, real board games adapted digitally yeah. for a, a modern era. Now, I will say that the, the when I say adaptation, it is a straight version of the rules that we know about. It's like a translation it's, more than an adaptation. Uh, yeah, so it is like, you know, a proper digital adaptation in so much as it is just the game, but digitally, rather than like changing the rules or anything like that. So, Royal Game of Ur is one of those. It's not the oldest game that we know about, um, as you know, historians generally. Um, Senate is, and they have done that, and I've not, I've not looked into Senate yet. But Royal Game of Ur is, is around the same sort of time. Um, it is thousands of years old. Uh, th- this this tabletop game, um, and it has been found in, but uh, not out of it's, print. It's it's well. Here's the funny thing: it was out of print for an extremely long time, um, and it was it was only kept alive um, by a very very small group of um, uh, of people um, in a very small uh, part of um, uh, I think somewhere in uh, Europe, like Eastern was it Europe, Mesopotamia. Um, so so that was that was part of its foundations and stuff like okay. that, I believe. But um, it was it was actually like it spread out. It became extremely popular. Like king, like the reason it's called the Royal Game of Ur is because um, pharaohs and kings and all that sort of thing. Yeah. They eventually did play this game, mm-hmm. and it was but it was also played by everybody. Yeah, um, and there are sets found in in you know pharaoh's tombs and there are sets found in you know uh you know uh, i'm sure garbage sites basically um and so the game itself um is a a race game essentially yes. uh, like backgammon so you um you roll the dice we'll talk about them in a second <laughs> <laughs> And you take these counters and you have essentially a track that you follow um, and it uh, it's your counters start in the middle of the board on your side. So imagine you and your opponent's two-player game are sat opposite the board, a rectangular board. Your c- counters start in the middle and then they move to your, uh, to your left and then into the centre and uh, then uh, down that centre line and then into essentially a home slot. Um, and and your opponent also has to move the counters in a similar direction, except for uh, they would be going, I guess, right. Um, and the middle line is the line in which if your counter lands on your opponent's counter, then that counter is removed, very much like backgammon, and goes back to the home square that, uh, of your opponent, right? Um, unlike backgammon, tokens don't stack, so you can't land on the same piece uh, you, you know you can't stack your pieces on top of one another and that'd be okay um uh and there are a couple of different competing rule sets that people think think is is exactly how the game was played we're not a hundred percent sure having done a, a bunch of research there is um there is a uh, a british museum video yes um which uh is by quite a famous youtuber i can't remember his tom name scott. now oh tom uh, scott that's that's where i've seen this before i really like tom and scott he is a very very smart individual um and he did a uh a video on his channel and also on the uh the, the british museum channel which is about this and it actually talks with one of the curators who essentially helped curate 
and find some of these these tablets upon which uh, we we know what we think the rules are. Yeah. So Irving so Irving Finkel found the tablet amongst some of the British Museum collection, and it was right. in um, cuneiform. Cuneiform. Cune- cuneiform. Cuneiform. So and yeah. So cuneiform tablets are like some of the oldest forms of writing, yeah. essentially. And from this tablet that he found, he managed to decipher a rule set for yes. the rule game of Ur. And what I love about Irving Finkel is he made his first, he made himself a board for the Royal Game of Ur when he was nine years old. I just think that that's delightful. And t- and apparently him and his sister would just play it and then just make up rules for it. And the fact that he's now, what, 60-odd or whatever in a, a British Museum yeah. curation, curator and actually discovered and like, part of the rule set for the, for the game. Yeah, it's incredible. And he's like the preeminent, preeminent knowledge about this extremely ancient game. Yes. Um, and um, so one of the really interesting things is that unlike um, you know most modern games, the dice themselves are not d6s. They're not six-sided dice. Um, they're actually f- uh, four-sided. Four-sided? Four-sided. No. Y- yeah. Five-sided? Tr- pyramids. They're, they're, they're pyramids. And so on each of the spikes of the pyramid, there will be a either a, a, a coloured tip, usually in gold or something like that, in uh, in the app version that I've been playing, or there won't be. And if there is a coloured tip, then uh, that is like plus one, and you roll four of these dice at the same time, and so the the sort of average curve ends up being like usually like you know it's like the average is about two basically. So there's a lot of luck in the game, but what, like, very much like backgammon, it's all about mitigating risk out, right? So you know generally that most people probably aren't going to get a four, right? Because that's that's extremely unlikely on a single roll, but it is quite likely you'll get a one or a two, and so you can start to think okay, and you can start playing the probability in your mind of like well if I move this my piece here uh, this turn then how likely is it that they've got enough pieces to for one of them to take that piece and put it back on my home square um, the rule set that I've been playing in the ancient games version is I believe it's the, the classic one I believe it's the one in the in, in the video that um, Tom Scott did in, in that uh, in the British Museum uh, there is a square in which if you there are a couple of squares in which if you land in them you get another go and there is one square right in the middle of the track that if you land on it not only do you get another go you cannot be taken from that one square yeah so you you end up with this a little bit of what i quite like about backgammon which is where if you have two two counters uh in a, in a backgammon square you those counters cannot be taken whereas an individual is quite quite weak so i've been playing it and it is surprising how close almost all the games are like they are it feels very well balanced for a game that is has a lot of luck in it but it also has a lot of that like strategy in it that's strategizing around 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 that luck and I feel like I'm getting better so again like backgammon I feel like there is definitely skill here and it's been really beautiful to go and play this game in a free app because so the British Museum did do they put back into print the Royal Game of Ur and you can buy a set yes but it is it is quite pricey yes like like to the point of it's like well I'll go and just dig up my own like (laughs) it's it's like you know really quite quite what expensive an, what, what, an, what an image you've just conjured up for us there <laughs> yeah. right. you and your little bucket and spade yeah just like well I've got to play the game so this this mobile version is so I, I don't I don't think it, it's unfair to say that it, it is a little bit rough around the edges but the, I, but it, it's kind of it's it's broader than it is deep which is uh, what I quite like about uh, a, a lot of um, a lot of digital adaptations which is that um, sure like the visuals are, are you know it's it's faux 3D but it's it's all 2D and there isn't a lot in the way of animations or effects or you know particularly like rich sounds or anything like that but it does have seasons of content uh, it does have multiple levels of difficulty of players it does have like like dozens of different admit again admittedly 2d 3d renders of of boards there's tons of boards to unlock tons of extras to to play around with dice to unlock all this sorts of sort of stuff it feels way broader than it is like uh yeah it deals in quantity rather than quality a lot of the time but the actual adaptation itself is just really good like it's just very well put together and like it, it doesn't need to be sophisticated you know it, it, it it's just uh, a an adaptation that knows exactly what it is and gets across that quite well and yeah and and it's got a good tutorial in it as well i think that one of the things we've talked about a lot previously is board game tutor uh, board game digital adaptations often with poor tutorials and actually the royal game of her is you know it, it does uses the same sorts of systems for teaching uh with tutorials as a lot of those games but it's quite a simple game so it's kind of okay as someone who after playing back
backgammon started reading books of backgammon strategy go bought on. their own leather bound yes case backgammon yes. board so is this hmm, i'm trying to see how this rates on this is not as good just the royal game of her itself like not the digital adaptation this game is not as good as backgammon like, but, it, but does it feel like a classic you know when you play those games <laughs> does and you it think, feel like a classic no joking aside joking aside like yeah yeah yeah, yeah you know what i mean yes because i've yeah, got because no, no, there are recent games that feel like they've been around for centuries like i think of games like the duke say for example yeah. sure or a game that came out last year called shobu which is basically four um grids with that are basically your pieces are pebbles and there's a rope dividing you and the other player and it feels like a game like go for example which has existed is, for ages yeah this is the, the, the this is the start of the race game like it is it is you know really you can see the the the, the lineage of every other game that has race mechanics in it uh, in 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 this in this game and like it is the the fact that here's okay here's the thing that's most impressive about it go on there are games that you can pull out the cupboard of the rainy southeastern english beach house set like monopoly Ugh. and cluedo and mousetrap that were made in like the the 30s or 40s or 50s or 60s that are infinitely worse infinitely worse than a game that is literally thousands of years old and like they nailed it like th this like, <laughs> like you know these ancient people they re somebody really understood how to make a game and obviously it evolved over time and it you know and it got added to and you know all of these different rule sets came along and it was superseded but the fact is like there are definitely modern way more modern games that have not got a cannot touch this uh, in terms of its quality and I think that that is a, a test to the fact that human beings have been, been playing really great games for a really long time and the fact that like mechanics for people thousands of years ago are still really entertaining for people in 2020. I mean <laughs> does it have does it have a Godzilla expansion though? Yeah. <laughs> uh. That was staying in with myself Chris Darby, Sam Turner and Peter, toss a coin to your Willington. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to leave a review too, that would be just awesome. If you're keen to dig a little further, why not head over to stayinginpodcast.com. On it, you'll find our page on Board Game Geek, our Steam curation page, and all the different ways you can follow us. At Staying In Pod is where you need to find us on Facebook, Twitter, and the Instagram. Many thanks again to all you wonderful people who joined us on our epic Charity Miles journey. It means the world to us and undoubtedly to all the charities you've supported over this last year. I'm off now to watch the final episode of Season 1 of The Witcher, which, by the way, I'm having an absolute blast with. Bye!